Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts, reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests. Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for season two as we continue to delve into the world of sports coaching. My guests will be presenting their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing and we then discuss its application. As always I'm delighted to have three excellent individuals join me this week. So gents if you would like to introduce yourselves and tell us your current role. I'm Dave Collins. I'm Director of Grey Matters Performance Limited, also a professor at Edinburgh University. So uh, I'm Jamie Taylor, Senior Coach Developer at Grave Matters and a coach at Loughborough University. Hi, I'm Andrew Cruikshank. I'm a Sport and Performance Psychologist for Grave Matters and I also work for the University of Central Lancashire. Fantastic, gents. Really, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, excited to get into some of the detail on this one. Just before we get going, for anyone listening, uh, a reminder to check out the blurb for links to the content we discuss and recommendations to other high quality content. Uh, I guess a little bit different this week. So we, we kind of picked a theme um, and we're going to explore that. And that theme is professional judgment and decision making. So um, I'm going to throw this over to you guys straight away and just ask you exactly what is professional judgment and decision making and why is it relevant? Professional judgment and decision making, which is a bit of a mouthful, so we'll go PJDM, or even easier, it's basically, it's an academic version of It Depends, um, which I think will be written on my gravestone, and I'm sure there'll be a few people queuing up to engrave it so. Um, and, and the basic principle is that in lots of different spheres of human behaviour, there's, there isn't what no what there's no one correct way, um, and we can get into the sort of the logic of that later field. But the, but the main idea is that therefore, if you're the guy who's having to make the decisions, whether you're a rugby coach, whether you're a, a strength conditioning coach, whether you're the administrator, whether you're running the RFU, whether you're a leader, whatever it is, you make decisions as to what is the best blend of methods and techniques that you can use to accomplish the outcomes you want to. So the, the basis of professional judgment and decision-making is that uh, anybody who's in that role of interacting with humans, other people, needs to be making uh, command decisions as to what's the best way to do this, recognising that that will change with the context, that that will change for a particular person almost daily, so what works for Andrew today might not work for Andrew tomorrow. And it will certainly change when you look at working with players of different levels, of different abilities, of different motivational states. Yeah, if the weather changes, et cetera, et cetera. So in simple terms, professional judgment, decision making, uh, it depends. Uh, a phrase that seems to antagonize some people, because what they don't recognize is, of course, the complexity is what it depends on. Fantastic. I, and I definitely think we, yeah, it'd be great to get into some of the what it depends on in a little bit. But um, uh, we kind of talked about this before we started recording. But do you guys want to frame this, I guess, a little bit from an epistemological perspective? Um, because I, as I said before, I think I think this is the bit that's maybe missing. And, and social media is wonderful for some things for nuance and detail. It is not. Um, so it would be great to just get an overview of how you guys 
I guess, see knowledge and the world and and the various elements of this and, and why it's probably pertinent to the points that you make around this? Jamie, I think they're looking at you. Yeah, <laughs> they're all looking at me. Okay, that'll teach me. Um, look, there's, there's lots of different lenses through which you can view the world. Um, if you're into skill acquisition, you can have a broadly cognitive or information processing view. You can have an ecological dynamics view. If you're a leader, you can have a, um, an autocratic view, a laissez-faire view. If you're a strength conditioner, you can, you can emphasize strength before power. There's all sorts of different ways of, of viewing the world. And there's no problem with that. The, the, the thing that you need to do is to just make sure that the, the, the way you view the world is most appropriate for the situation you're in. So um, I, there's some great work, a guy called uh, Musa Moshton, Moshton did stuff in, in PE years ago, and he, had, he came up with an idea called the teaching style spectrum. And, and it, for me, it encapsulates it perfectly. And the, the teaching style spectrum went from one end, which was authoritarian, I'm the teacher, let me do this, to the other end, which was very much discovery learning. And my favorite is, okay, if I teach abseiling by discovery learning, it's probably not gonna work very well. It's gonna look bad on my CV, <laughs> okay? So I don't do that. I tend to use a command style. If, however, I was to use a command style to teach a class in creative dance, something which perhaps unsurprisingly I have never done, but if I were, then all of a sudden I'd be in a situation of not using command style, I'd use discovery. So quite obviously there are a variety of different teaching methods or teaching styles or teaching tools that I could use. And, and all we're saying is that the decision on which ones you use when is the important part. Now, if you're a good coach or a good teacher, you can use a variety of different tools. You can use a variety of different styles. Just as, as a coach, Phil, you might get angry with people and shout at them. You might give them the hairdryer treatment. You might build them up and be very, you know, round the shoulder, arm round the shoulder type style. But of course, not, not any one of those styles is inherently better than another. It's, it's more effective or appropriate to the context in which you use it. And that's, that's the basis of it. Would, would you say that lies in your foundation as a pragmatist? Is, is there, does somebody else's, I guess, kind of worldview then influence how they might see the alternative to that, that they might prefer something over something else? Is, is that a, the kind of the crux of some of the debate and the discussion at, at the polarizing ends, I guess? So I'd say that from, from my perspective, seeing some of these things play out, I don't know many coaches or many real world folks that aren't pragmatists, that aren't interested in what works and what is going to help people improve. Now, from a theoretical perspective, some people might adopt a position that says, this is the worldview I'm going to adopt and I'm going to apply it to everything because it's an ontology. It's a view of what is rather than a philosophy that promotes what works and what helps people get better. Now, I would suggest that if you're in the camp that says, right, I'm going to apply this particular theoretical lens to absolutely everything, then you're limiting the impact that you're going to have in the real world. You're going to limit the impact that you're going to have on the people that you're trying to serve. Now, for most, 
Well, for, look, I've never seen a coach that's adopted a very specific and narrow theoretical lens on the world and used it all the way through. I've seen, I've never seen a coach that hasn't used a version of an it depends approach using different methods for different people at different times. I have, however, seen coaches that have been dragged down a particular theoretical orientation and ended up getting themselves a little bit confused and a bit tied up. So I guess trying to keep this, and I'm conscious the audience for this varies quite quite drastically in terms of experienced coaches and new coaches. So in my head, I'm kind of picturing it's effectively a continuum. And ultimately, we can use a lens that looks at the whole of the continuum. And, and we could pick and choose whatever we want to with on that context dependent everything else you guys have touched on. Or actually, some people would choose to pick, pick a lens that maybe just zooms in a little bit closer on a certain area of that continuum. And there's still be, even within that smaller area, there's still going to be one, you know, a variance. There's going to be one end and the other within the bit they look at. So would you say it depends is looking at everything that's available rather than that kind of zoomed in feature on with just looking at one, one specific area? Does that make sense? To an extent, yes, it does. Um, it, it, the, the, frust the frustration to me that it depends is the simplest and most complicated thing you could ever think of in teaching and coaching. Yeah, it, it is for me stating the bleeding obvious. Of course it depends. Of course you would use a different method. You know, if, I mean, I, I, I was a maths teacher and I would use different methods with, with six-year-olds and I taught them, God help them, and my 12-year-old... My my A-level group, the 15-year-old naughty boys group that I had, and, and I also taught it at, at higher education at a university level. Now, if I, didn't, if I don't employ different methods across that range of, 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 of customers, I'm an idiot. It's, 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 it's simply obvious that I do that. So then one of the relevant things to do in teacher education or in coach education is to teach and work with someone to improve their ability to be able to mix and match their approaches and styles. So I can't see, I, Jamie says he's never seen a coach who isn't interested in doing, you know, do, doing a good job for the people he coaches. Unfortunately, I have seen a few and I've seen them from national level downwards or upwards, but, but I think they're in error. It's, it, it really, you make surely you make the best decisions you possibly can. Now, if you have a limited worldview, if you say it has to be, I have to coach like this because this is how it works, then okay. But you'll 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 surely still vary within that as you've described, Phil. Yeah. So it, you're right. All I'm going is that the the bigger the range, the better. It's not that you use lots of different methods. It's that you use the most appropriate methods. Now, the most appropriate methods might be quite limited or they might be quite varied. And that's another context. But it, it seems to me, stating the bleeding obvious, that it depends. Um, and, and I'm very interested when I hear people who say, you know, who work as coach educators saying that that's a nonsense. It's a cop out. No, it's not. It's, it's, the, it's the most fundamental basic point you can have. Uh, yeah, and I, I wonder if that's. I don't know whether it gets lost in translation. I, I can't speak for other people and how they interpret it, but it's, is it too catch-all? Is it, is it too broad in that sense? Does it, I'm just thinking of, of why people would kind of go, 
is almost common sense. Well, it is common sense. And, and I just, it is common sense as an argument in itself. I wonder whether people just struggle to understand that a little bit because it that almost seems slightly too easy. Um, but it isn't easy. And that's why I say it's the simplest and the most complicated thing. And, and, if, and if people think it depends is easy, then by gosh, they should, they should try teaching it. <laughs> but because what you, what you get into, and this is what, I mean, gosh, we've been doing this since like, you know, early 90s, that, that this, is, this, is the, you know, this is the way in which you make decisions about how you might best coach someone. So it's very difficult. It's very complicated. And it requires a lot of work. So for me, um, coach, coach training or teacher training is not a very good label. Education, whereby someone makes informed choices as to whether they might coach this way or that way, um, an informed choice as to whether you might uh, tell off or criticise a young player, and on another occasion, praise and, 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 and you know, reinforce the young player. Now, that's a pretty fundamental choice. And I know of some coaches who believe that it's always best to be fluffy bunny positive. Yeah. And I also been coached by some coaches who believe that it's hit them with a stick or hit them with a carrot and see which one they like. So it's, it, of course, there are people who are limited. But as Jamie says, I think those limitations limit them. If that makes sense. You know, that's a, a self-imposed delimitation. It doesn't help. Yeah, no, no, that definitely makes a lot of sense. I'm keen to bring Andrew in. So um, question for you, Andrew, if I may. Um, how would you say an individual's either personal philosophy or coaching philosophy would actually start to impact this? So against an it depends approach and, and the variety of stuff we've talked about, if, if I've got a preference or a philosophy as a coach, how would that align or work against it? Yeah, so that's obviously one of the key features of um, the sort of PGDM approach is that it's, it's really rooted and grounded in the, the coach or the leader or the practitioner's epistemology and their, their philosophy of working. So, I mean, epistemology being obviously primarily concerned with the, the nature and role and use of knowledge. Um, and without digging too deep into that, because it's, uh, as we chat about a lot, it's a great Scrabble score, but it's really, it's really quite a complex um, area to get into. But essentially, we think, um, yeah, it's, it's where knowledge comes from, how it's passed on and shared. So clearly, if you're of the epistemological position that uh, knowledge is um, very factual, black and white, and it's handed down, that will lead you to make series, a series of decisions and taking actions which match into that and tie into that um, underpinning belief system. Whereas on the other hand, if you've, if you've got a view that knowledge is a bit more uh, complicated, it comes from lots of different places and it can be um, uh, sort of created in lots of different ways, um, then that leads you to then coach and lead and do whatever else in a different way. So I think our, our um, sort of approach around this is very much grounded in that the PGA DM, which plays out, really does reflect the philosophy and epistemology of the practitioner. And, and a real interesting point here would be that were you to look at coaches, um, they might do lots of the same things. So, for example, I would, I have been, I have used constraints in my coaching since the day and teaching since the day I started. Yeah, because it's eminently sensible. 
the only thing I might do, and, and as, as it was, um, I think, in, in uh, Walter Winterbottom's classic text in the 40s about coaching football, as it was in Jim Greenwood's classic text on total rugby, there were constraints in there. They weren't described as such, but they were there, changing the shape of the pitch, putting extra players. Of course it was. I think the difference is that because I believe uh, that the, uh, the player's understanding is an important factor here, I might use constraints, but then I might question to tease out and verbalise why they did what they did and why they might then transfer it to another situation. Now, for some coaches, I know that's verboten. Thou shalt not. Yeah. Indeed, if I give lots of explicit information to a player, I actually... I run the risk of confusing them, but also damning them because they won't be able to stop thinking about the how to do it when they get under pressure. It's called, you know, it's uh, it put some quite nice ideas out there. But it so it really the, the basic thing here, Phil, is is how you think people learn the mechanisms by which things happen. So one of the things that we're we're big on in all all of all of our research, and you know, as Andrew across leadership, Jamie across you know talent development, me across coaching working in strength conditioning, gosh, working with, with CSI, yeah? Unfortunately, it was CSI Glasgow, not CSI Miami, which is a bit of a beggar, but, it, you know, that's... Sorry, Andrew, but that's how, that's how it works. It, it, that's, it's part of it. And therefore, understanding why people take the decisions they take uh, is driven by how that works, the mechanism of how it works. So when someone says to me, here is this you know, affordance or um, uh, attunement, because I'm, I'm a, you know, a thick East End boy, I go, how's that work? What's that then? How's that work? Yeah. And then I, 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 I enjoy listening to the explanations that do or often do not accrue. On, Jamie. No, I think that, and the, and the point of the role of understanding playing out in multiple domains is a really important one. And I mean, uh, look, as an example, I'm watching the South African rugby documentary recently, and I'm looking at the way that coaches operate there and the importance and the value that coaches, as they do in, in lots of different places, place on players understanding why they are adopting certain tactics, why they're adopting certain strategies week to week. And it's not just a case of uh, the manipulation of constraints in a training session, particularly in a rugby context, because it's going to take a very, very long time to do that, where task specificity or representativeness is very hard to find. That coaches are deliberately building up a base of understanding, declarative knowledge, if you like, for players to support players making decisions on the pitch and in action. And indeed, if you look at studies that have, have taken world-class performers and have taken higher-level performers across multiple domains, they will tend to have higher levels of declarative knowledge than those who do not. And there is likely a reason for that. Take, take another, I mean, let's take, take another jump. Um, there is a, a healthy questioning or contempt of drills. And I have personally banked heads with someone who doesn't like drills. Um, drills are there, they've emerged um, from years and years and years of combat. I'm ex-military, which tell by the bottom of scar. I've been a combat athlete uh, most of my life, um, certainly how I've played rugby. And, and, and so basically, you drill. You know, if, if you do a stoppage drill on a weapon and you do the stoppage drill on a weapon or you do the, the, uh, 
that you do your drills on parachute or, or changing gas at depth in a, as a technical diver and you drill because you want to have a highly you know, highly repeatable uh, pattern of behavior in which you are confident. So the drill embeds it, it locks it into the brain and it gives you confidence that it's there. So now all of a sudden the use of the drill has a motoric function it's teaching you that movement. It also has a psychological function. It's making you confident that you're good at that, you're good at passing. Actually, it has a social function because it's showing everybody else that you can do that and therefore they'll trust you with the situation. So it, this, is, this is, again, this breadth of view. But when you look at something, you don't just look at the, the, the method of teaching or coaching and go, that doesn't, that's not the best for the psychomotor, the learning of the skill, but you also consider, oh yeah, but there's a confidence bit and there's a social bit as well. So drilling might be good for a whole variety of reasons, or it might not be good for a whole variety of reasons. And, and all we are saying, sound like give peas a chance, but never mind. All we're saying is that you look at a situation and go, consider all the different aspects of what that's trying to achieve. So Andrew, does a heck of a lot of work in judo. Uh, judo has for years included a very drill-like repetitious pattern of movements called Ushikami. Yeah, it's, it's, you can treat it with cream, but it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a valid movement. And, and Andrew, that has, that has all sorts of benefits other than just getting someone to be able to, you know, uh, be confident with a throw. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. And it's... Um... It's really picking up on the the different intentions that you can have behind an exercise or a drill. So I think one of the, the big pitfalls that we can fall into um, when observing coaching or observing leaders or performers is to make judgment decisions on purely what we see. However, that is a, an impartial, sorry, not impartial, but it's a, it's a partial judgment at best. Because without knowing the intention behind the action, it's very difficult to judge accurately if the outcome is successful or not. So that, that's certainly one of the big things that, um, that we would look at as part of this PGDM approach is what is the intention for impact? Or if you want to strip it back, why are you doing what you're doing? Because it's only when we understand why you're doing what you're doing that we can give a sort of reasonable judgment on how appropriate that action was and how successful it was because otherwise we're just it's just stabs in the dark we're just placing our own assumptions on what's going on and deciding whether it was effective or not based on sort of arbitrary criteria because without really understanding why the thing is being done it's very difficult to judge if not impossible to judge accurately what a what a cracking point from my sweaty colleague it, it, it's, ab it's completely and utterly true. Um, it's, if, if I'm asked to watch a coaching session or a teaching session, my, my first my first question, you know, someone says, well, how, 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 what do you think? I say, well, I don't know. What were you trying to achieve? What were you trying to do? Yeah, because it's the, it is the decision-making. It's the aim. It's the what were you trying to achieve with that drill or that practice or that, that game or whatever, yeah? Um, because that, it's that intention for impact, which is actually a phrase... From, from psychology, Phil, it's, it's, it's what you do when you set up a counselling session with someone. You have an intention for impact. This is what I want to achieve. It's what a doctor does when 
you know, she or he treats you, they go, okay, so you know, what do we need to do? Well, we need to get a bit of weight off. We need to lower the blood pressure, whatever it is. Jay, what do you, what do you think, mate? Uh, I mean, I was just about to agree. I, I think that I often see, well, I've seen on social media, the idea of drilling being represented as the idea of trying to induce placebo, that it doesn't really make any difference. And I think at that point, we're getting to a stage where people are reducing and this is where the lenses that we use are important and not just applying one lens because we need to consider the psychological, the, uh, or the cognitive, the affective, the social domains in how people learn. So, I mean, bring it back into practice. If I'm working with a front row forward and I'm working with, let's say, a ve- I mean, there's some very high level front row forwards that ha- whose handling skills are not very good. Steady. <laughs> I said high level front row forward. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm crap. That's <laughs> now, if you put them in a training session that's complex, highly demanding, very random, very variable, with a group of players at a similar level, then they are not going to move their practice on or move the skill on as much as if you took them aside and did some drilling based practice. Fine, I'm, I'm making a little bit of an assumption there, but the conditions of practice and the intention for impact based on the context you're in are absolutely fundamentally critical for a coach. And we ignore that at our peril. There's a lot to unpick in that. So uh, I guess a lot of that has been talked about. I, I, I think coaches that have a variety of tools in the toolbox, for, to, to use the analogy. How would this apply to coaches that are novice, beginner coaches that don't have that level of understanding, that, that don't have that experience to know what the continuum looks like or what the different pedagogies look like or the techniques or the tools or whatever we want to call them? How is that something they can overcome, get beyond? I guess that's experience and learning, but is there something else they can be doing within that? Excellent question. Imagine that you had uh, a not okay. So it's a typical Sunday morning session at mini rugby at the rugby club, and a dad comes up and says, "I'd really like to help. Didn't play the game. Don't know what I'm doing." Um, you would probably be pretty directive in what you'd ask him or her to do. I'm sorry, dad, mum or dad. But yeah, you'd probably be pretty directive. You'd say, "So can you stand here with that tackle bag, or can you get that? You know, be there or do this that, yeah. The minute they try to develop their coaching skill, so the minute they go on their level one course, again, probably much of the content will be reasonably directive. It'll go, here are some practices you could use for this. Here are some practices you could use for this. This sort of game would work really well. This is how you might give feedback, yada, yada, yada. And and no one in their right mind would disagree with that because that gets the person up and running and in they go. If you're still doing that when they're on a level four, then that's worrying, (laughs) frankly, yeah? So there is a recognition that when you move from someone who's just started coaching through to someone who is more autonomous and working at a higher level and therefore working with greater complexity, there is a, a, that they need to have more tools, they need to have more knowledge, they need to be more, it depends, (laughs) Yeah, they're more conditional or nuanced, lovely word, yeah? Nuanced, sounds like I'm posh, in their choices of what they're gonna do. But what you get in some coaching courses is that level one and level two are recipe coaching. 
do it that like this, do that like this, do that like this. And then all of a sudden around level three, it goes blah, and go, it's all open. And now all, and everybody's going, what? But, but, uh, hang on a minute. So my, my ideal coaching education course would start with a lot of, you know, recipe type coaching, but enough it depends for people to recognize that there were choices. And then as you move through, you can open it up and open it up and people can start to see that there's a number of different ways of skinning a cat or, you know, teaching this move or whatever. Now, there are all sorts of other advantages of that and we've got the data for it. If you teach someone through this very directed, in this circumstance, do this, in this circumstance, do this type of method, they actually progress quite quickly. They, be, they, they, they reach the standard that you want the standard of competency that you want very quickly. And they're very happy. If you teach them through a much more it depends type lens of, well, there are a number of different choices here. Why would you take that choice? Why would you take that choice? It takes them longer to get up to speed. And therefore, people would look at it and go, well, that's not such a good method because this guy went like this and this guy's gone like this and it's taken him or her a month longer to get to that standard. But if you come back a year later, the person who did the competency-based course will just be at the same level because they'll have just remembered it and they'll just be doing the same things. But the person who's done the it depends type expertise type course will have progressed because they'll have carried on using that. Oh, I wonder if I could use that. Oh, that's a good idea. Wonder if I wonder where that would fit. Then they're, they're, they're much more experimenters, Phil. They're much more trying stuff out and they're much more creative. So in actual fact, what when we describe these two approaches um, and we, we, we typify them as a competency-based approach and an expertise-based approach, doesn't mean that someone does a course and they're an expert, but it means we're building their expertise with expertise being the dependentness. You, you, you give them what it's going to be like if they progress up the coaching ladder, but you also give them equipment so that they can watch other people and critically acquire or oh, I like that I'll nick that or oh, not too keen on that type of an approach um fit Andrew or you you know we've done the competency expertise stuff so that makes sense yeah no I would I completely agree with that and it's um I think we're we're sort of getting into the uh the balance of um sort of procedural skills or behavioral skills versus cognitive skills and the sort of developing the, the cognitive engine the thinking skills to be able to um pick stuff up but then to keep learning and learning and learning and learning after the engagement with the whatever it is the, the course or, or the weekend or whatever program it is um and i think the that that's a sort of key consideration in all this is like identifying and promoting the the cognitive drivers the thinking skills behind this type of coaching or leadership um, because th those have been underplayed a lot in lots of accreditation programs to date. So whether it's coaching, whether it's um, sports science, um, whether it's leadership stuff, it's all been sort of very competency-based, very procedural-based, like can you do this skill? Have you got this behaviour? Um, whereas the sort of cognitive side has really been underplayed, which is unfortunately the big driver for long-term progression and development and sustaining that it depends-ness going forward. 
I think the uh, the other fact that I'd emphasize here and something that I'm particularly passionate about is the expectations that we have for coaches and coaching. If we've got really low expectations, that is, we're just doing our best to get as many kids as we can turning up and participating on a Sunday morning and that the number of coaches that are trained using the term deliberately is our key metric that we just want more and more and more. So we make it as easy as we can. Now, all four of us, I'd imagine, given our backgrounds, would have had a coach and have had coaches that have had some of the most profound impact on us in our lives. Now, that's the real power that sport has to change lives, to help people along their way. If we have low expectations for the value of that, then I really think we're getting things wrong. If we take things based on expertise, if we're adopting an expertise-based approach for the development and education of coaches right from the start, we're holding our profession to high standards. And at the moment, that's where I think there is a real gaping chasm in terms of the expectations by which we hold coaches and coaching to. And what Jamie, Andrew and I would do is seek out people who coach in different ways and teach in different ways and have experience of different methods and watch them and talk to them and ask them and try to broaden our experience. What lots of other people do, uh, and you, with the greatest respect, Phil, you'll see it on some podcasts and webinars and stuff like that, is they'll come in as a gang, and I know we all work for Great Matters, but they'll come in as a gang and they'll all agree with each other. I disagree with these beggars um, frequently, yeah? Uh, and unfortunately, some of the time, they're right. <laughs> Actually, not unfortunately, that's great. Why would you not, you know, this debate back and forth? Um, Nietzsche said, you know, to, to argue with rank, to argue with vigor, but to disagree without rancor, it's the mark of a true mind. That's what academic arguments mean. Academic arguments to me are like playing rugby. You beat the crap out of each other, then you have a beer after. Yeah. So it, it's it's that discussion, it's that level of criticality and that critical discussion that says, well, I'm not sure. And then sometimes you'll go, oh, that's what you mean. Oh, that's right. You know, I'm, I'm with that. But it, it that seems that seems uh, quite a difficult thing for some people to do because their positions are not are less epistemological and more evangelical. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, and the echo chamber is definitely a big, it's a current thing, isn't it? And I just wonder, uh, are mediums like this set up to, to do that? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I think they could be, but I, I don't know if they are at the moment. And that's, that's something people have posed a question on. You know, genuinely, how many people do I get on that on this podcast would disagree with each other on the podcast? And, and to be honest, unless I'm going to promote that and stimulate it in a way that says, I, you know, please, can you come on and we'll have this discussion from both sides? I think people tend to fall in line on something like this. And I don't know whether that's about being, you know, unobjectionable or whatever. It's just a really interesting kind of phenomenon within that space, I guess. So and, and maybe we need more of that. Maybe we need to not verses I don't like verses I just think it creates a dichotomy which isn't useful but uh, let's actually just have a thorough discussion and a thorough debate and and just let people make up their own mind and, and inform which is I guess where my frustration has probably got to with the the social media twitter kind of debate I, I'm not sure who it's helping anymore because if I'm honest I think I think it's in the same place it was from five years ago nothing really seems to have progressed it still still seems to be the same discussion the same arguments 
no one's actually given an inch and I'm just not sure actually who who that's helping if you follow it it's interesting yes but I don't know how much personally I now take away from that and and I'd love to just see it and I don't know how it would progress I don't know where it would go next but I would love it to evolve go on Jamie no I think there's a really there's a really interesting bit in this and that there is a real opportunity for us to progress and to move our knowledge base and, and practice on through a level of criticality. But I do agree. I think there is a uh, there is a there is an issue in the, on the medium of Twitter in being able to really fully express and help people understand what you're saying. I mean, I've I've engaged and look, no no doubt I've engaged on a number of sides of this, and I've engaged where people when I feel that. I'm trying very hard to help somebody hear what I'm saying, but I don't think that they are. Now, is that a limitation of the medium? I don't know. But at the same time, I also think that, and if you look at the potential that Twitter has for coaches, given that, and look at and some of Dave and John Stoskowski's work has shown the potential impact that Twitter can have and other social media, you know, it's becoming the, the mode and medium of choice for a lot of coaches. And, uh, webinar season not that long ago also showed that coaches a lot of coaches are, have a voracious appetite to learn so the level of discourse on it is really important and the level of uh, the level of accuracy of what's on there is a really important feature but then again I do think that if people are arriving on there with an, the desire to move coaching on then I think that it's perfectly fine to engage in a level of criticality and I um but I, I see that quite a few people are at the point when they're they prefer not to engage because they don't want to meet the shouting faces it's it's difficult because there's a level of no look yeah Phil I think you said it it, it is complicated yeah there's, there's a lot to it and whilst the principles are, are for me reasonably, reasonably easy. The idea that it depends, and clearly it depends, I, I, don't, I don't know why people have a problem with it. I mean, that the current problem seems to be, no, 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 you can't mix these methods. Yeah, I mean, perhaps that might be something we might explore because different explanations in parallel for things in nature are pretty damn common. Yeah, so why someone should say, you can't mix these two explanations. That that seems to be more, if I may, an evangelical statement than a than a logical statement. However, that's where it is. Um, but there's a level of knowledge that you need to pick out the, the different bits. And so, as Jamie said, you make everything as simple as it may be, but no simpler. I think actually, no, that was Einstein. It wasn't Jamie, but it was you know same sort of bloke. You know, funny ears. Anyway, whatever. But that but that's what came out and. Um, therefore, if that's the way you're going to work, then you try and make things simple, but you recognise these principles, and, and one basic principle is that, you know, there isn't one answer. You know, there can't be one answer. Can there? Because it's so blooming complicated. I think this, like, it's, it's interesting when I mean, we've looked at it in the past, particularly from a coaching perspective and, and sports science practitioner as well, but the, the way that um, sort of training systems and programs have been run on sort of the, 
the sort of procedural heavy knowledge and very much competency based. And you, you contrast that approach with something like the training of medical practitioners in the GMC code and um, the, the processes involved in terms of working against much bigger and broader themes because there's a recognition there. I mean, this is a, a long established profession that we can't, we can't reduce it down to all these individualized things because the thing's just much more complicated than that. So we work against these bigger and broader themes and look at the shades of gray and look at the complexities involved because we've got to. Now, the necessity there is that um, if you don't do your job that great, it doesn't, it really doesn't look good in your CV. Now, coaching's a bit less extreme in that are we uh, facing the same levels or, or scale of challenges as, as surgeons and whoever else? Clearly not. But the idea that we'd adopt a completely different style of training to reduce it down to these individualized procedures, behaviors, whatever you want to call it, um, is just at odds with the sort of expertise and type of knowledge that you need to perform complicated jobs well. And coaching is, even though it's not on the same scale as clearly surgery, it's a complicated job because it involves working with people. And any job, I think what we would stress here, what that involves working with people is complicated. And, and, and because I'm ever so old and senile, I, I sat on the same, I say, sat on the committees when they started to put the, the, it was at the time, it was the National Coaching Certificate. And then it became the UK Coach Certificate. And at the time, for a variety of reasons, they didn't want they, they didn't want it to be too academic. So they kept it away from the universities and they went to NVQs, National Vocational Qualifications. And National Vocational Qualifications were designed for things like hairdressing and bricklaying. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, <laughs> Lord knows I can need, I need a haircut, but I'm not great on hairdressing. But, you know, I, I learned a bit about bricklaying. And there was the... When you learn to, to lay bricks or you learn any of these jobs, there's lots of it dependsness. The whole point of an apprenticeship is that you pick up the many different ways you could do it. So you use a queen closure on this corner or a king closure. Do you, you know, how do you how do you work it out? And you you actually get that that it dependsness through the interaction with your 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 master, you know, your 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 your, your tutor, your master, you know, the guy you're apprenticed to. Whereas when you take an MVQ, it restricts it down to 15 or 16 set pieces that you have to be able to do. And it's a very competency-driven approach, as, as Andrew says. I think, uh, you know, what, what, did we, what did we get, mate? Was it 100 and, 130 competencies needed to be satisfied in a weekend course for a level one uh, coaching qualification, whereas I think it was 30 uh, areas of competence needed to be demonstrated in five years of medical training. You know, it's 130 competencies in a weekend. That's a lot of ticks, yeah. Um, and it and it it, it 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 didn't make sense to me that that's how it would work, yeah. How would this align with? And, and I guess I can speak for my journey, but I think this is pretty common in terms of, you know, so you're a new coach, you've, you've done whatever you've done initially. You'll go and do some CPD, whether that's a kind of formal qualification or you'll do the informal stuff and you'll go and watch coaches. And and we tend to do this mimic. I, I'm, you know, I'm going to borrow that. I'm going to experiment with it. I'm going to come back and try it and see how it fits for me. And, and I, I think Anna Stodder's work recently kind of really nailed down that process quite nicely around what, how I then choose, what do I keep, what do I discard, how does it align with me? 
how would that sit within i guess like the coach development research that you guys have looked at how would you, what would your perspective on pjdm be around that process of why do why have i kept the stuff i kept and why have i binned off the stuff i did or didn't like anna's work presumably assumed that the people knew enough to make the informed choices yeah now i i mean i've, I've read it and looked at it and but, but that's my interest um andrew and i collaborated with a guy called cliff olson who's uh, you know he, he's also a round ball fella but he's all right nevertheless and 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 cliff looked at how mentors and mentees worked in football and he, he, he identified this mismatch, this cognitive dissonance between the expectations of the mentors and the expectations of the mentees. In simple terms, the mentors wanted to meet with the, the, young, the younger coaches, the novice coaches, and say, Let me, let's talk about your philosophy, let's talk about how different things fitted together, etc., etc. And the mentees went, you've got a bag full of drills, stick them in here so I can be better and learn what the heck's going on. Um, and there was this mismatch because of the, you know, what was going on. So it's almost, um, and, and there's lots of this in psychology, in, in moral education, in leadership education, in, in kids learning at universities, in the ways in which they progress. There's all sorts of things that are like that, that um, if you can get background noise, by the way, if my missus turned my kids off, um, but uh, instead of me, which is a result, um, but um what you've got is that people progress along these stages. And, and if I've got someone who's at this stage, you know, the bottom, the bottom stage, and I then want to move through, then what I've got to do is talk to them at a stage above where they are. If I start talking to them at, at like the highest stage, if I start talking to my five-year-olds about, about maths in terms that I'd use with my university students, they are going to be somewhat confused. Yeah. So what I do is I talk to my five year olds in terms of what they might need to know in a seven. And I talk to them in a seven and a nine. Now this isn't condescending at all. This is just find the level and talk to someone in terms that are practical and applicable to them at that level. Whereas if I was to take your, um, your under nines rugby coach from the local mini rugby club, and say, watch this session by Eddie Jones. Look how much you can learn from it. <laughs> no, <laughs> of course you can't, yeah? Because you don't know, well, certainly you don't know why he's doing what he's doing, and you don't understand the nuances of what he's doing. And the last time I looked, your under nines will be slightly different to the rather large gentleman that uh, Mr. Jones is working with. There's a world of difference. Where Where is the place for, and, and I'm thinking kind of coming back to the, I guess just let exploration as a coach. So let's say I stumble upon ecological dynamics or, or whatever, you know, direct instruction or whatever it is. And I go, that's great. Actually, I just want to get stuck into this. I want to understand it. I want to apply it. Do you, would you guys, is that just not a normal part of a coach's development? So at what stage does that become a potential issue? If you then say this, this is how I want to operate. This is what I think is best for me and my players in the context I'm in. You know what I mean? At what point would you start reviewing that and, and questioning, okay, have you gone too far? Is it still applicable? Are there other better ways for want of a better term? So I think it's, it's, wor it's worth referring back to the idea of intention for impact. And the question is why? 
why does the why is a coach adopting a particular method or indeed methodology now that's the that's the root of everything and both andrew and dave have, have, have talked about that is the it's, it's the key and core question all of this is why why would a coach adopt a particular method or a particular approach over another one and that ultimately is the core of the of the level of expertise that we're ideally hoping coaches will develop is that going to be context dependent sorry i'm just thinking in terms of let's say i've got a rugby club it's relatively social that they're not being pushed down pathways or anything else and i go eco deep great this is this is interesting uh, the players like it we're not judged on performance we're not judged on outcome and i would really like to just experiment with this and just understand as far as i could possibly take this so almost from an experimental sense what what would your perspective be on that were you seeing that as questionable absolutely fine if there's no again if there's no real intent other than this is i think great for me and i've explained it to my players and they're keen to explore it would you be comfortable with that we not why, why, why would anybody in their right mind question another human being experimenting with that? Yeah? So long as there wasn't a risk. So I think, you know, uh, I mean, a couple of us are, are PE teachers here. Yeah? And you would try stuff out with your kids, but you'd first, you'd look at it and go, is, you know, does, does, this, is, does is this safe? Yeah? But the other thing, Phil, would be, do you know enough, yeah, to actually make a judgment on what's good or not, yeah? And that's, again, it, please, that's not, con not meant to be condescending at all. It's, let's talk, let's back, back and forward. So if someone's come to me and said, well, you know, what, what do you think of these methods? I say, well, I think, you know, I think constraints is great. I've, I've coached like it for years. Um, and, and so have the people that I've read. But there are, there are, there are significant differences in the terms of the, the, the extremes of application as to what's going on. So, of course you experiment. Of course you allow experiment. What you do is you encourage people with a structure against which they can experiment. Okay? And uh, I would completely agree with that. The only bit that I would probably have a question about is, is this about the coach or is it about the players? Because ultimately, I think that... I would, I would wonder about somebody's intentions for coaching if it was purely there for their personal experimental purposes rather than uh, there to coach and to meet the needs of the people that are in front of them. I think, sorry, if I could just add into that as well, it's, um, I, I suppose it seems to be a question of like theory first or intention first. And I think that uh, if you look at lots of the research that's been done out there in terms of expertise, is like hallmark hallmarks of experts or those with greater levels of expertise is that they're really clear on what their intention for impact is and that intention has come through a, a systematic analysis process so the best coaches the best practitioners the best performers in general you'll see that as common qualities the ability to form a very clear intention and that intention has come from a very diligent systematic analysis where the pros and cro uh, sorry the pros and cons are, are traded off against each other and those are two features which if we're looking in a practical sense what does this all mean is that if you can get coaches um being even better at their systematic analysis and being even clearer on their intention for impact 
then that ultimately benefits the kids or the adults or whoever it is that they're actually coaching. There's, there's one important bit here, and that is lots of these techniques are pan-theoretical. Um, or in English, <laughs> you can use them, but how exactly you use them and how exactly you think they work could be explained by this theory or this theory or this theory or this theory. Yeah. So if, for example, you took a demonstration, some, you know, some of these the theoretical perspectives we've looked at are more in favour of a demonstration than others. Yeah. But most of them, I think, now are agreed that a demonstration is a good idea. But it's the how it works. We go back to this mechanisms bit we mentioned earlier, that the how it works is the important thing for you to think about when you decide if you want to use it. Because if you are an ecological dynamics a practitioner, at least as far as I understand it, where you would use a demonstration, how you would use a demonstration and the impact the demonstration would have is very different to if you were a, whatever they classify the, the other, another, another school, an information processing approach. Yeah, so it's it's not just what you watch someone do; it's the it's not what you do; it's the why that you do it. So this comes it comes back to our ideas of principles, of intention for impact, of mechanistic explanation. Uh, and this is the bit I find fascinating because you you come back to that point around how complex coaching is, and actually how much knowledge and understanding you need to have to be good at it, and yet we let people i don't know whether let is the right word but people with zero knowledge of it do it and and you know i and i, I constantly question this and, and part of the masters was was to kind of get better and understand more but i've been i've been coaching for 20 years which isn't that long in the scheme of things but there's there's 99 of it i still wouldn't know or understand in anywhere near enough detail to to be able to inform some of the things i'd like to inform and i think maybe that's where certainly in my own head, it becomes the chicken and egg piece. How can I deliver what I want to deliver if I don't know what's going to be most effective? And if I don't know what's going to be most effective, I can't then, do you know what I mean? So you're kind of, you're searching for something, going, I need an underpinning or I need a, a model or a theory or something, but I, I don't actually know because I haven't had the experience of all of these, what is going to be best at that point. But the practicality then becomes how much time do I have to go and speak to a mentor or an academic or uh, someone that is going to be able to give me that information? Because I, I think in principle, it's absolutely sound, but the real world uh, just doesn't operate like that, does it? So suggestions for how you overcome that? So, so I would say that, can you imagine a world where you love doing something, but you don't want to get any better at it? And that you're quite happy with your current level of knowledge and that's and we, we treat that as, as absolutely fine because of all the difficulties in getting better at something now for me i can't imagine a period of my life when i'm not trying to get better at this i can't imagine a period of my life where i'm not searching for the uh, an improved level of knowledge a, a a better way of doing things for the people that i work with whether that's coaches whether that's players now, I think it's more a, a level of ambition or a recognition that this is a really complex, complicated thing to do. Now, if we see it as an end where there is, here's the mark, I can now consider myself tick, good coach, I can stop now. 
And I think that's probably a mindset in the profession that we've really got to try and get beyond. But, but frankly, Phil, uh, frankly, Phil, you're halfway there because you're looking. You know, there's a, a, a quote from Aldous Huxley, and so these boys have heard it a lot, so I'm, I, I apologise. Experience is not what happens to a man, it's what he does with what happens to it. So it's not just the fact that you're, you've done a session, it's you reflect on that session, you think about that session, you talk to your mate and say, how was that? Yeah, you don't need necessarily to do a university degree. You don't need necessarily to, to um, you know, to listen to, X podcast, yeah. Um, I'd hope you did both, and you might read a book as well. <laughs> yeah. In other words, you you get a variety of different sources, and you try them out against each other. And say, hey, a minute, that doesn't make any sense because you know, and that sort of stuff. But the minute Phil, you start engaging in active reflection, the minute you're thinking it through, the minute you're turning to your mate and say, "How was that? You know, how was that? What do you think?" Well, I think you could have, you know, and. Don't use the F word so much because they're only eight. Okay, fine. Sorry, you know, that's a good good coaching point. Note to self. Um, but but that that's you're you're there, buddy. You're doing exactly what I think all of us would would want you to do because you know uh, when when someone coaches my kids, I'm hoping that like Jamie has said, they're aspiring to be the best they can be, and they're changing stuff the best they can be, and they are self critical. That, that tees up quite nicely, although I'm just thinking I should have spoke to you, Dave, before I spent 11 grand on a master's, because you might have said I don't necessarily need to do it. So that would have been a good conversation. But... Five, mate. <laughs> um, how, so from the sphere, the academic sphere you guys kind of operate in, I appreciate you very practical as well, but how would you make more of what is shared within that world more accessible for the intermediate novice beginner type coach because some of the stuff um rob mason i think did has done a couple of blogs on his uh, research in the afl and kind of communication and, and interactions between players and coaches and, and he's just laid it out in a really nice simple um effective way and, and i know that's come up as a, as a discussion on, on social media before so it'd be really interesting what you guys think how does it need to be translated? Should people be upskilling themselves to be able to read the stuff that's there? Was something in between? What are your thoughts? Andrew? Um, I th one, one element I think to this, and apologies if this doesn't answer the question direct, I'm sure Dave and Jamie will help me out in a second, but it's worth considering the, the, the pushes and pullers of um, coaches exploring more and digging into why they're doing what they're doing in terms of current, or sorry, but I say current, it's also a generalisation, but most coach education or coach development courses. So when it's very coming back to competency-based and you get to the point of ticking off these competencies, what's the, what's the sort of motivation and drivers for people to then go on and do more stuff? Because it's, as Jamie, I think, mentioned earlier, and Dave too, once the, the box is ticked, then you're like, all right, fine, I'm a coach. Whereas when it's much more sort of cognitively orientated, expertise driven, you're setting people up to then go, I am going to go and read more about this, or I'm going to go and find out more about this, because the the, the complexities seem to matter. Um, so I think that that's one thing that's worth considering. It's the, the current recognition and reward systems across the sport and landscape to go and dig into the shades of grey. Because at the minute, as a generalisation, the reinforcement is of doing the sort of black and white tick the box stuff 
which doesn't create this culture of I'm going to go out and learn more. So, um, by the way, Phil, I appreciate you uh, putting the academic put, putting me in the academic box. I'm sure some of uh, some of my friends will really enjoy that. Um, I think that so I completely agree with Andrew's point. It always comes back to me for to the the point at which you engage. So a coach begins engaging with a knowledge base, and what do they see knowledge as? Do they see it as well? It's this, and it's simple, and I'm just going to acquire it. I'm going to look for the golden nuggets that I can take from something that I can copy and paste into my session, or is it a bit more sophisticated? Is it a bit harder than that? And are we treating, uh, do we, what's the messaging that we offer to coaches? Is it that this is really complex, it's gonna take you a lifetime of trying to understand what's going on here and you will never get there? Or do we say, look, we're looking for golden nuggets that you can just copy and paste. Now, to the point about academic writing, yes, I think that academic writing in general needs to be as simple as possible, but, um, and I'm sure this will raise a smile in here somewhere, but it can't be any more simple than it should be. So, and I think that particularly if I, if and far more esteemed academic colleagues that I'm on the call with here, who have always ensured that their writing is at an appropriate level and it's not overly complex, at the same time, though, there is a real responsibility for coaches to get to a point where they have they've worked hard enough to be able to engage with the complexity of coaching and not treat it as something really simple. And I think that there is a there is an issue in the in the blogging world that reduces things that where I, I mean, I read a blog from a couple of days ago that was doing the rounds that talked about the the need for always being positive as a coach. Now. It didn't at any point articulate what positivity is. It didn't explain why you should always be positive as a coach. Now, as a result, that's a really simple message for me to hear as a coach, but it drags me down a corridor that's completely not very useful to me. But because it's not written in academic language, if you like, everyone thinks, well, that's, that's great. I'll, then I'll pass that around. And that's the real, uh, the, the vicious circle I think we might be in. There's a lot of work in, in learning and knowledge. And, and it, it sees people, I think I mentioned it earlier, Phil, it sees people as moving along these, this continuum or couple of continuums. And at one end, knowledge is facts. Learning is learning facts. And that's it. And at the other end, knowledge is a nuanced, self-justified, self-examined, uh, state of play that, that's constant, that's, that's dynamic, that it evolves. Therefore, learning is looking at things from a number of different directions and a number of different perspectives and, and in, you know, developing constantly your own thing because learning is a lifelong product. But you don't turn around to a, to a parent who's going to help with the under nines on a Sunday morning and say, well, of course, you'll have to commit to this for life, mate. Yeah. I turn, it, I turn it round. Would we like to be taught, would we like to be treated by a doctor who didn't read and do any continuous professional development? Would we like to, our children to be taught by a teacher who was trained in a method that he used and then that was it, that's what he did? No. So why would we like our children, our, ourselves, to be coached by someone who doesn't consider 
taking things forward and doing things in a good way. If, if you know, if the thing's worth doing, it's worth doing well. So I'm not expecting the under nines coach Sunday morning rugby to to engage on a master's degree and or to 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 read any of Jamie Taylor's learned papers. I mean, I'm waiting for the film to come. Um, you know, or get some get some pictures in there. But you know, I I am expecting them to be keen to be better. You know, if you you want to do it. You know, and it's important, and you want the kids to learn, and you want them to have a good time, and all that chat. Then you'll look for different ways to do it, and looking for different ways to do it involves, for me, I suggest slightly more than listening to that nice Mr. Smith on for ten minutes on his podcast. If it's worth doing, it's worth investing time in. That makes a lot of sense. And I 100% agree. I do wonder if actually the answer to that question of why it becomes acceptable is it the lesser of two evils? Because are, are you better off having a coach that does what they do and, and isn't that keen on developing ahead of having no coach? And, and if, if your kids then don't get to engage and actually do anything... And, and I would disagree with that, but I just wonder if that's actually the reality of why it's not more challenging. And I've spoken about this before. I was definitely in that place for, for a few years where, you know, oh, well, they're a volunteer. Well, we can't really tell them they're wrong. I'd be completely different now. If you're going to volunteer, you need to be good. You, you've got sure. to do a good enough job. And But we need to be, I think we need to be clearer on what that looks like and the responsibility you sign up for rather than just well, we're desperate, so we'll just get you in the door and it doesn't matter. Mate, I was a performance director, and as a performance director, I wanted good coaches. And it wasn't just any coach. I think a bad coach is worse than no coach. I think they derail, they demotivate, they exploit, not in necessarily an illegal sense, but they just, it's all about, you know, it's all about them. Um, so, you know, for me, coaching is a marvellous profession. It's a wonderful profession. It makes such a contribution. Let's value it. But if you value something, you don't devalue it. If you value something, you say, that's shiny. That's not. Would you like to be shiny? Come over here. The biggest opportunity missed by 2012 was to plough money into coach education and coach development as opposed to nice stadia that you could then sell cup price to football clubs. Fair, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to jump back a little bit if we can, because um, Jamie talked about kind of what Dave, you both talked about drilling. So I'm, I'm always interested in this. And I'll, I'll hark back to a Twitter debate I saw, geez, probably five or six years ago. And I honestly think it was about 300 odd messages long about drills and good or bad or whatever. And I scrolled through the whole thing. And I don't think I saw one definition of what a drill was. So, and, and I'm always trying to get to the bottom of this because I, I'm, I've definitely been in that kind of anti-drill place in, in terms of my own, I guess, definition of what I think a drill is. I would probably argue I'm now anti-bad practice and I'll come on to that in a second. But from your guys' perspective, what, what would you deem as a drill? So I suppose you'll notice earlier on that I mentioned the idea of a, uh, a massed, uh, non-variable practice. Now, um, I suppose... From the point, from the, I agree with you. Lots of different, lots of people will talk about things and then change definitions. But I think that as a group of coaches, we can tend to have a, a decent mental model of what this means. Now, to me, it means doing something quite a lot, 
repeating it. That is block practice. You do it again and again and again. It's not very, it might not be very variable, but then again, I've run, I, I use plenty of drills in my coaching that are, that will, where I'll change the level of variability, variability being different ways to do the same thing. And it may or may not involve opposition. So it would be more specific, less specific. That's what I would see as being a drill. I couldn't give a monkey because the difference between a drill and a practice and a game, yeah? Our, our Scottish colleague, um, in case you didn't catch, he said intention. Uh, you know, he's it, absolutely right. It's intention. What are you trying to achieve? So I might, you know, I might use a, you know, if, if and, and no, joking apart, Jamie is right, of course, you know, the, the drill connotation is that it's a subset. It's taking a part of the eventual activity and concentrating your mind on it. Yeah. But, but when does it stop being a drill and start being a practice and stop being a practice and start being a game? It's, that's that's um, an academic onanism argument. Look it up. Yeah? It's just a message. A waste of time. Yeah? Um, so it's what are you doing using this exercise practice? Let's call practice. What are you using this practice for? And is this practice the most effective way of achieving what you'd like to achieve? It's and it isn't. But to 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 damn a subset of our toolbox as inappropriate is well, I, I think it's at best naive. It's like um I had to learn tables at school, you know, once, two is two, two, two is a four, three, two is a six, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then we all used to get little badges that said we'd done all that, you know, and there's blokes walking around with campaign medals down there. I've got one yellow one for the two times table, you know, complete failure. But but the point was that that drilling, and that was drilling, it was rote learning, is quite effective. And there's lots of great work to show it's quite effective for certain purposes. Yeah, you don't learn, you know, I mean, it, it, Jamie is a history graduate. You don't learn the level of criticality and insight of history by, learned by, by chanting off dates. Of course you don't. So what's the intention? Is this the best tool for the job? Other alternatives? Explore. Um, at, at, at the risk of uh, bringing us into a language debate, I always think it's interesting when you think about the difference between a drill and two drill. So when you start looking at actually treating drill as a noun and a verb, and I think what we are saying is it's like the, the, the doing part of it, doing the drill has its time, place and purpose. What you actually use to do that, whether it's called a drill, a practice, a whatever, is a different question. But I think when you start to get into it, we, we talk about the drilling process rather than a name for an exercise or an activity is where we get into another interesting area. Yeah, I think you raise a great point. I, I mean, the amount of times I see the, you know, it's it's become repetition now. That's that's the the new word, isn't it? And, to, you know, repetition without repetition. Well, yeah, okay, what does that mean? It's just, it's, it's an odd one. But my, my, the reason for asking that question, for what, other than to, to get, I think, some clarity on it, I also wonder if the anti-drill nature, which is definitely why I wouldn't have been a fan, was around poor practice that I would argue was lots of people stood in lines waiting to have a go with 
just just minimal opportunities to actually re repeat the practice and and i i can't speak for anybody else i don't know this isn't something i've checked by asking a lot of people i would be interested but i wonder if that's why they got a bad rep and actually was the the anti-drill piece or the the tgfu game sense ecod gamification all of those types of things is that effectively just a shift in the kind of the window of discourse around we we want more people to be more active more of the time and i wonder if that is part of it i don't think it would be all of it but i wonder if that's a layer that just says we need to be better at getting and I'm, I'm thinking more kids than adults but actually on a Tuesday night in when it's cold and wet and you know snowing and whatever else you don't want to be 10 deep doing a 2v1 run around the corner drill and and pass so um be interested in your thoughts Jamie you want to jump in yeah so uh, without wishing to drag things in a in a what another wildly different direction there's there are big differences between a TGFU approach an ECOD approach and uh well, gamification, if, if that's a pro an approach, I don't think it is. I, I've seen it banded around an awful lot on Twitter, but I think um, the uh, metacognitive stuff that Amy Price has done is a little bit different to some of the, the ways in which we see it represented. Um, for me, again, it comes back down to why. Why are you doing what you're doing? Now, if you've got a line of 20 kids on a cold, rainy night in December, then... There are going, to, if, and a coach doesn't understand why they're doing what they're doing, then surely that's the target rather than anything else. And if if you want to change change behaviour in the way that you've just described, Phil, which is a completely sensible, completely logical reason, then tell people. Don't go on some silly blooming campaign. Explain. This is useful. As an example, the Daily Mile. Okay, let's take kids and get them to run round or stagger around or whatever for fifteen minutes uh, in their school uniforms. All right. Um, now it's face valid. If you make children more active, that must be good, mustn't it? Yeah. But does it transfer into them being more active later? You know, my, both my children are very sporty. Well, all my children are very sporty. But my youngest daughter was fed up. She said, how's that daily mile? She said, what a waste of time. You know, we have to run around and the teacher stand in the middle and shout at us. You know? And it's crazy. It's just, what's the logic? Think about it. Think about the consequences. As a teacher, you think consequences. If I do this, what will happen? As a coach, you think consequences. Think consequences. But if someone is making a point, a good method for making the point is to explain why. Not just to say, it's like this. Oh, that's interesting. Why do you think that? And if they then said, well, drills involve lots of people standing around whilst only one kid does it, so, well, you're right. That's bad. That's poor practice. Under certain circumstances, it might be very good practice. It might be very good practice to stop the whole class and from whatever the whole class or group to watch one kid do something. That might be brilliant. And there are certain circumstances, through educational gymnastics, all sorts where you might do that i teach you know you know when i've taught martial arts that's a good way to do stuff yeah so it's it, it depends <laughs> we go with laurent we're back where we started you what you do is there are all these different tools and the tools are useful for certain jobs and not for other jobs so you do why did you do that with what intention did you do that with what intention are you anti-drill 
with what intention are you so big about games? Why, as it were? I'm conscious of your time, but I'm also, yeah, conscious of uh, that might be a really good place to, to round it up and, and, and finish off. So um, unless you guys have got any other points, but I would be really keen to just get some recommendations on content or, or where you might kind of push people to, to look a little bit more into this type of stuff. I think the recommendations I would make would mostly be papers. Um, I mean, you know, we've tried to write books, other people have tried to write books, but you know that it's it's a case of and it's a case of trying to get yourself into the habit of looking at stuff and seeing where it comes from and seeing what gives. Yeah, um, I think we've you know we've we've thrown you some stuff. We 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 define ourselves as pracademics. We define ourselves as pracademics because we academically study something, but we try and keep it and, and explain it simply. Explain it as simple as you can, but no simpler. So. And all, the, all those papers, despite what you might read on Twitter, all those papers are now accessible through the universities. Um, the university have to have a central repository. So anything published by Cruikshank is available through UCLan. Anything published by Collins and Taylor is available through Edinburgh. So it's not a case of, all oh, we can't afford it. Yeah? Despite the fact I might have to pay to join someone's podcast. I, I, oh, well, that's great. And if I, I'll grab the links from you for those if I can, because I, I do think that that probably gets missed by a, f a fair few people. And that took me years to work out that you can get them for free. So, and that's just me being stingy, to be completely honest. So, no, 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 biggie. But, but we will think about it and we will pass some stuff back to you. But I, I think it's, you know, until Jamie Taylor writes It Depends Coaching, a butler's tale, you know, whatever it is, then, you know, we'll have to go with it. Edmund, the butler's tale. Jamie, Andrew, what are your thoughts? I, th I think um, we will obviously uh, provide uh, some suggestions on uh, resources there. Um, but I suppose the final bit for me is th there's obviously quite a lot of things out there already in terms of uh, podcasts or uh, documentaries or different things. Um, th the thing that I would just emphasise at the end, and again, just to pull us back to the start, um, is when watching stuff, listening to stuff, whatever it is, just that focus on why are they saying what they're saying or why are they doing what they're doing is just essential. So you could watch, for example, The Last Dance, which I think everybody spent their part of their lockdown doing, and quite right too, because it was great. But going back and watching that, but not necessarily with your eyes as much on Michael Jordan anymore, but like Phil Jackson going, why did he do that then? What were the other options that were being considered? What was the impact of not doing that and doing this instead? And again, like uh, Man City documentary, there's loads of things out there where we're starting to get um, more snapshots or more publicly available snapshots into behind the scenes footage. So like there's a good Formula One uh, series as well on Netflix. And again, just looking at that lens, particularly the coaches and the leaders and people involved, like why are they doing what they're doing? And again, because that, that's, the, that's the driver of everything. And it just should hopefully highlight the point of going well actually it's really difficult to judge how effective they actually are when we don't know exactly the reasons for their actions I think that's I would point. That and say definitely less consumption of uh, podcast media blog media and more thinking have you just told people not to listen to this podcast jamie i'm concerned about that i might have to edit that bit out mm -hmm. but no no mm -hmm. that, yeah i think you're right and i i tend to find that's that's always the second listen you know, I'm just watching the test on Amazon, the, the Australian cricket documentary, because 
I watched it first time and I was absorbed. Disturbingly, I quite liked some of the Australians, which is a weird, especially Australian cricketers, that's a weird feeling. So, but actually going back through with, with like you say, with that critical eye going, I'd be interested to know why he's done that. And, and then listening to, to Justin Lang on a couple of things he's done, he, he talks about some of the stuff. And yeah, I, I, I would 100% echo that in, in terms of be absorbed in the story the first time, but, but don't just leave it there for sure. But if I may add one thing to my, to my esteemed uh, hooker colleagues, by gosh, it must have been a dark street. But anyway, uh, to Jamie's uh, comment, and that is if critical thinking and critical thinking in the days before Zooms used to be you talking to your mate down the pub. I, I can only endorse talking to people because people might have different opinions. So sharing and getting in touch with. So instead of listening to the webinar or the podcast or whatever, listen to it and then talk to someone else about it. And if you can, talk to someone else who might have a different See, Jamie, that, that's how you finish, because Dave's just said, basically, go and share this with a load of other people, then talk to them about it. So, yeah, it's always on the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> but be careful how you say that. Yeah. <laughs> no, gents, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, this has definitely added a huge amount to my understanding and my clarity. So I'm hoping for the, uh, the listeners it will have done the same. So, again, a big, big thank you. Uh, round up the roundup um, to everyone listening we hope you find it useful uh, thank you again to my guests for their excellent insight links to all the content discussed and that the, the guys will send to me i'll put into the blurb on rugby coach weekly uh, as always please subscribe like and as dave said share it go and speak to some people about it um, as always again thank you for listening wish you all the best and go well well that's it for season two I am genuinely still shocked and also genuinely delighted that you as listeners have continued to listen and engage with the podcast and for that I cannot thank you enough. Season 3 will return on Sunday the 17th of January. I'd like to thank all my guests for giving up their time to come on and for the outstanding insights and experience they have shared. Every week I'm learning something new and challenging my thought processes and I hope that you are benefiting in similar ways. If you have any feedback, positive or constructive, I'd love to hear it from you, so please do get in touch. My thanks to Dan Cottrell and Rugby Coach Weekly for providing the platform and being so supportive. Lastly, I'd like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs>